This is the special release of Talking Tactics, where we show you the career-making power of a single, clever tactic idea. I'm your host, Diana Kibiltz, Strategy Director at Ology, and this is what I have for you. Five inspiring episodes, five higher ed pros you'll recognize, each with a story of a single tactic that opened up doors in their career and in some cases, even redefined the norms of how we do our work in higher ed. Join me as we take a trip down memory lane to their early career moments, the challenge they had to solve, and the tactic that did the trick. After all, if a single tactic defined the trajectory of their career, what's stopping you from defining yours? Are you ready? Let's talk tactics. Hello, hello, fellow Tacticers. Welcome to the final episode of this special release of Talking Tactics. The special release features high-red pros whose careers have been marked by a tactic they tried when they first started. My guest today is someone I deeply admire because everything she touches turns to gold. My friend, Mallory Wilsey. Hi, Mal. How are you? Day. You're too kind. I'm right. <laughs> as though. long as it's glittery gold. Oh, we're right. good. It is. Like you, it's it's figurative and literal. If you've ever had a drink with Mallory, it sparkles. I'm not even joking. I'm right. <laughs> I, I am the uh, I, I single-handedly, I think, fund all edible glitter in this country because I buy it yes. both for personal and professional use. And we love you for it. So we'll start with the present just short, briefly, and then we'll go to your past. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your current role and what you're involved in with higher ed nowadays? So I am currently the VP of Marketing and Demand Gen at Element 451. We are an AI-powered, all-in-one student engagement CRM for higher education. And recently, I have also taken on the second job title of Chief Strategist and Producer for Enrollify. We made this exciting (laughs) announcement just a couple weeks ago. And I got to say, you know, I I was talking to a a dear friend of ours in the industry, and she reminded me that it's my MO for joining companies and bringing media companies into them. This is Mm -hmm. the third time I've done this, and I can't be more excited. So uh, (laughs) we love that. And I mean, there's a good pattern, right, is everything. I love you repeating these successful patterns. If you Uh, find what works, right? That's right. Just do it. (laughs) All right. Well, we are excited, too, as obviously podcast hosts for Enrollify. So stay tuned, folks. There's so much fun stuff coming. So, Mallory, let's talk about where, I, let's say, like, all this stuff started. I don't know if I can say, give it that much credit, but let's go back in time to your beginnings in higher education. Can you tell us when your career started and what your first job was in higher ed? 
Sure thing. So my, I feel like my higher ed career started actually while I was still a student on mm-hmm. campus. I worked for uh, the admission office mm-hmm. as a student ambassador and tour guide, but in the summers I was employed full-time in admissions and got to get my hands in all sorts of really fun and creative projects that were focused on ways to connect with prospective students in digital mediums. Mm -hmm. And these summers, this was the summer of 2005, six and seven. So this was before, right? Facebook was available to people without a .edu email address. Twitter didn't even exist. At the time, it was a blogging platform at my alma mater. And so (laughs) I really started to love uh, and see and get an appreciation for all things digital as a student. And When I graduated in 2008, we know what happened to the economy. Mm -hmm. Um, I was grateful to get hired pretty quickly in the admission office Mm -hmm. as an admission counselor at that time. Um, and you know, really wasn't, I wasn't expecting that my entire career was going to be in higher education, but those first couple years were foundational and transformative and just really kind of launched what has now been a 15 plus year career in this industry. Mm-hmm. I always say that being a tour guide is like the gateway drug to really a career in higher ed. <laughs> I mean, it's so innocent at first. You're like, I could do this in between my classes. And then when you graduate, you're like, well, like I might as well take a job in this office. And then whoop, suddenly 20 years later, we're still in. Um, All right. So while you were in that role as an admissions counselor and like this whole kind of digital stuff is happening, um, what problem did you see that you could solve through, through digital or what kind of what what did you think you could come up with that was new? Sure. So I found I think I think I unlocked an insight pretty early on. And, and maybe I'm giving myself too much credit by saying I unlocked this when I was still a student, but I noticed that there was a distinct difference when I was giving tours. Uh, that were individualized for one family mm-hmm. versus large groups. And the questions that I would get when I was walking a single family around campus Mm -hmm. were incredible, so detailed, so specific. Uh, And when you got into those big group tours, right, people think about any situation when when you're with a large audience, you probably are less likely to speak up. Maybe you have a question, but maybe you're nervous what other people Mm -hmm. will think when you ask it, Mm -hmm. right? And so especially when I could walk around that campus just with the student and leave their parents behind and, you know, maybe (laughs) a a separate meeting with with someone else, that student would start opening up with all of these questions and concerns about what life was really like living on campus. What's the real deal? Do I need to bring this or that? And so as a student, I started to see the value of, of those, you know, one-on-one conversations mm-hmm. because then judgment-free, right, I could provide answers. Mm-hmm. So when I started working in the admission office and, and took over that blogging program, which essentially, right, social media happened, it turned yes. into a digital ambassador program within a couple years, 
Um, I started utilizing the students uh, that were ambassadors in the program in that way and would find opportunities for them to connect digitally one-on-one with students to answer those questions, again, in that judgment-free environment. We found, we happened to stumble upon this cool tool at the time. It was called FormStack. Mm-hmm. It is now, uh, I believe, FormSpring, which is a product that uh, enables forms on websites and has mm-hmm. you know so many more use cases. But at the time, all FormStack was, was a Q&A site that allowed people to send in questions anonymously and get answers to mm-hmm. them directly. So we implemented that within this digital ambassador team. And the number of times we would get the question, do I need to bring toilet paper with me to the fucking forms? Okay. I, I mean, wish I had the count. <laughs> hey guys, it's Zach here, founder of Enrollify with some huge, huge news. So I am ecstatic to announce that Element 451, the AI-powered all-in-one CRM platform for higher education, has acquired Enrollify. Back in 2019, I approached Tony Frega, the CEO of DD Agency, with an idea. Tony's a good friend of mine, and so I said, dude, let's build a next-generation media hub for higher ed marketers and admissions professionals. As a lover of media, I was just so impressed by how the attention landscape was changing and how brands like The Skim and The Hustle and Morning Brew began to eat up market share from more traditional publications. And I thought there was an opportunity to build something similar, uh, you know, obviously a lot smaller, but similar in the niche but oh-so-important arena of higher education marketing. Tony and the leadership at DD were gracious enough to allow me the time and the space to ideate on this half-baked idea and then launch Enrollify's first-ever content asset, which was, you guessed it, the Enrollify podcast. Since then, Enrollify has grown into one of the most trusted resources for candid higher education marketing content in the industry, and we've welcomed industry giants like Terry Flannery, Jamie Hunt, Allison Tercio, Eddie Francis, Dave Kibbles, and Jeremy Tears, just to name a few, into our network of creators. As we started thinking about the next chapter of Enrollify's life, it became clear that it was time for Enrollify to scale. I'm pretty good at building things, but scaling things is a skill I'm still working on. When thinking about who could take Enrollify to the next level, I felt as if artists, Mallory, and the leadership at Element 451 were uniquely qualified to inherit the brand. Element has actually been a part of Enrollify's story since the very beginning. They were our second podcast sponsor ever. They've invested in almost every experiment that we've ever run. They ship product faster than any other ed tech company I've ever met. And perhaps most importantly, artists and the leadership team invest seriously in thought leadership and education. Building Enrollify has been the most rewarding experience of my professional career to date, and I couldn't be happier to collaborate with the Element team as we seek to take Enrollify to the next level. And don't worry, I'm not going anywhere just yet. You are not through with my lovely voice just yet. Um, But if you've found any value in Enrollify over your years of tuning into our content or watching our videos, it would mean a lot if you could share a kind word or two about how Enrollify has helped inspire you or helped teach you something new about marketing on social media. It would really, really, really mean a lot to to the whole Enrollify and Element team, but to me personally as well. So if you've gotten any value of any of the content that we've ever produced, share a quick story or or a quick thought about us on social. That would be wonderful. Well, thanks so much for being here, guys, and get ready. We've got so much in store that I can't wait to share with you all soon. But for now, back to the podcast. 
So I love this because you're right, right? There's there's definitely questions that we're embarrassed to ask when people are listening, but it's still questions that we have. So uh, it's really insightful to take that observation and turn it into, hey, let's create a safe space for folks to ask questions. And then you see the kind of questions that come up, which is not content we're writing. We're not writing. You need to bring toilet paper anywhere <laughs> or not bring toilet paper anywhere, right? I guarantee um, that is not in any website's FAQ, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. If if you're listening and you have anything about toilet paper on your website, Mallory and I would like to know. <laughs> Please DM us immediately. Okay. So you implemented uh, kind of this form, some anonymous Q&A form on your site. Did that take any... Uh, did you have any challenges doing that? Did it take any special resources? Did you need permissions? Or how did that work for you? So because we were primarily implementing this within this digital ambassador team, mm-hmm. and we didn't need to go through a lot of, uh, you know, layers mm-hmm. of or rounds of approval or, or committees, <laughs> right? So... <laughs> Especially those early days, we had a lot of free reign on that team because everything was so new, right? This is 2009, 2010. People are still figuring out what Twitter is. Like Instagram had just come out around that time. Like there were no rules in social media. Those were the days. Those were the days. Those were the days. I remember freedom. Uh, but the pattern that I think is important for the listeners here is I'm not going to, I mean, I am going to say it. I've said it before. Definitely ask for forgiveness, not that permission. Try the thing. We found that one of the most effective ways to deploy this was through the students themselves. And so when mm-hmm. they were blogging or posting on social networks, um, they would start to get, you know, followings of prospective students and they would share the links to those anonymous Q&A um, forms so that the students knew that the people responding to the questions were the current students, mm-hmm. not, you know, the staff member who is making the decision on their application. Mm-hmm. Because again, are you more embarrassed to ask the person who's deciding whether or not you get admitted to the institution? Mm-hmm. <laughs> question about toilet Toilet paper paper. (laughs) or someone who you would be a student with, right? So obviously you're going to ask the student. And so we were very intentional about having those student to student um, Q&A forms. We did have a more official one because of course there are some questions you're going to want the official company answer. Um, And we would deploy that through the, uh, you know, the official college's social channels, but mm-hmm. this was very um, organic in terms of the effort. We, I can't even honestly recall if we had it on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, you know, as, as grassroots as it could yeah. be. So I bet it's, it's hard to know or remember exactly what results you got from this. Um, do you have a memory or a sense of what what changed with this experience? Did you did you see a lot more engagement online? Did you see an impact on applications? Uh, did people give you any feedback? What what do you think the results were? Yeah, a handful of things. So first of all, students when they would come to campus, whether for individual visits or open houses over time did start to reference this anecdotally. And so Mm -hmm. we knew it was having an impact because 
students would come up and, and of course we integrated these digital ambassadors mm-hmm. into these open house programs. So a student would come up to Gabby and say, oh my gosh, Gabby, I've been reading your blog. I submitted some questions to you. You answered them. Oh, or- that's so sweet. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. Or you know, they'd say, um, you know, hey, maybe I haven't submitted any questions, but I saw like because they could see the list of all the previously submitted mm-hmm. ones, um, you know, and and your answers were really helpful as I was kind of thinking about X, Y, or Z. So the anecdotal evidence that it was working was um, was huge. Mm-hmm. We did start to use the information, though. I mean, maybe we didn't integrate um, toilet paper as part of our FAQs, but (laughs) we did start to, because I was located, like my position was in the marketing office at this Mm -hmm. point in time. So, and we had control of the full .edu website, and we were actually going through a redesign kind of in parallel. So we would pull the insights and the questions asked to the students as well as oh, the official clever. college account, right? And we would turn it into web content. And so I think smart. that was, yeah, that was a great integration because then we knew um, you know, if we saw a decrease in a certain type of question, then that probably meant they mm-hmm. were getting the answer from the web. So, so smart. So that kind of hints at what happened next in your career, I think. So as a result of this idea and all the other ideas I'm sure you had, what happened next for you? Um, you know, when your leadership started to see the success of this and the other ideas you've had, what happened? I left the college a couple years into this um, and moved over to M. Stoner. Mm-hmm. So right about the time responsive web design was becoming a thing, mm-hmm. um, I hopped over to uh, M. Stoner, which is now part of Carnegie. And uh, really, I think, you know, I probably spoke to more than a thousand web professionals in my nine years there, mm-hmm. uh, maybe maybe more, um, about why the website and specifically the content on the website, mm-hmm. the accessibility of it, the mobile friendliness of mm-hmm. it um, really mattered. So that was, I think for me, a pretty pivotal point in my career because I got to see um, the challenges of so many different types of institutions, not just the small private college that I happened to graduate from and work for. Mm -hmm. And I think the insight there is uh, when it comes to providing judgment-free answers, whether you're a community college, a private college, a huge four-year institution, the students still have all the same questions oh, and yeah. they are turning to digital to get those questions yeah. answered. Everyone needs toilet paper, you know? They sure do. <laughs> so now kind of looking back, are you able to identify a through line from that first tactic to where you are today and when you went to after M. Stoner? Yes. I, I think that there's two parts to this answer. The first is we always have to be customer-centric, whether that customer is a student, a prospective student, a current student, an alumni, whoever your audience is, uh, focusing on their needs Mm -hmm. is critical. Um, The other side of that coin for me in my career has been serving that customer centricity up in a way that is digital first. Mm -hmm. Um, that, uh, and I think with today's changing student expectations back in 2009 and 10, we were talking about 
the millennial expectations Mm -hmm. and how those were changing. And then all of a sudden we were talking about the Gen Z expectations Mm -hmm. and how those were changing. The reality is folks, like whether you're 16 or 66, like we, at this point in 2023, we just expect everything to be fast, convenient, personalized, Mm -hmm. digital first. Mm -hmm. And throughout my career, I feel like I have always been a bit ahead of whatever that latest or greatest next digital trend is. Mm -hmm. So it was social media, then it was responsive design, and now it's AI. And guess what? that becomes a solution to providing judgment-free answers. Yeah. So I'm curious if you uh, could replicate that effort that you made with the forum submission back then with the technology we have today, what would that look like? Well, the solution exists, Day. Lucky for you. No, the solution (laughs) does exist. Um, You don't need a like web link anymore. You need a chat bot Mm. and uh, not just any chat bot, but a chat bot that's built on open AI. And I feel really strongly about that because we think about our experiences uh, with AI, right? Alexa's been out for almost 10 years now, but even just over the weekend, I'm like screaming at Alexa because it can't figure out how to play my Spotify playlists correctly, Mm -hmm. right? So there is still some level of distrust that we all have with our experiences with AI today. Every time I pull up a chat bot for an airline, I just start typing, get me to a human, get me to a human. Like, I can't handle it. (laughs) These chat bots, like these chat bots of pre-November 2022 are built on old technology. They require Mm -hmm. uh, FAQ documents, like, and the person asking the question has to mirror the question that's built Mm -hmm. in the back end. And it's just, it's a mess. It's not warm. It's not competent. And therefore, we don't trust it. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to now. Chatbots built on OpenAI are the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. They create and mimic human-like responses. Mm -hmm. They understand tone and um, therefore their responses are highly competent Mm -hmm. and very warm and we often might not even know we're speaking to a bot instead of a human as a result. So when we think about all these questions that maybe students won't ask us, Mm -hmm. they don't actually have to ask us anymore. They can ask an intelligent chat bot and that Mm -hmm. bot can provide the judgment-free answers. So it creates a safe haven, Mm -hmm. more psychological safety. Students can get the answers to questions that they would feel super awkward Mm -hmm. maybe asking staff or even current students today. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think, you know, you always having been these two steps ahead, like I always look to you to see, hey, where are we headed as an industry? And this is it, right? This, This kind of AI, this warm, competent interaction with information is where we're headed. So everyone look to Mallory to see where the future is going, as I always say. <laughs> All right, we're going to close with last question, which is if, you know, there's folks listening to this right now that are early career, just like you were in 2008. What's uh, what's your advice for them? Two part advice. The first is build your network because yes. as you continue in this industry, your network will become everything. 
you will get to see these people at conferences, interact in LinkedIn. Um, it is so valuable to make friends across the industry to tap when you have tactical questions mm-hmm. or strategic questions. How are you doing this? How are you doing that? Mm-hmm. You know, I think we happen to work in an industry that's really open to sharing ideas, which, you know, I can't imagine an exec working at Maybelline calls up an exec working at Lancome and, and grills <laughs> them for, for you know, information. Yet we happen to work in this incredible industry where the, f- like, freely sharing information is celebrated. Yes. So developing the network becomes so important so that you have the ability to tap them when questions arise. Mm-hmm. My second piece of advice is to experiment. I think it's so critical for our own professional development and learning. Uh, One of the tenants at Element 451 is learners before masters, and Mm. experimentation is such a huge component of Mm -hmm. that. So when a new tool comes out, when you have a new idea, don't be afraid Mm -hmm. to give it a go, to give it a try. Maybe it flops. Maybe you never deploy it. Who cares? Mm-hmm. You'll learn something in the process. Mm-hmm. There, There is uh, nothing, in my opinion, more valuable than experimentation. I, I think that's great advice. You know, I, I remember myself being early career or the teams that I've managed since then. Uh, you can always see the folks that are taking learning into their own hands versus the folks that are kind of waiting for the training plan. Like both are important, right? But you need to contribute to that too uh, by taking control of your own learning and experimenting, as Mallory said. Okay, my friends, that concludes this amazing episode. I hope that after listening to this special release and all the other special release episodes, you can see the true power of an effective tactic of trying an idea and seeing it work. Our amazing guests like Mallory today were in your position once. They tried something and look at where they are now. They're still trying things and they're so successful. I hope that you now have the courage you need to walk the walk and talk the tactics. See you in January. Thank you for listening to Talking Tactics. If you're inspired by what you heard today, I want to know. Find me on LinkedIn by searching for my name. That's Diana Kibilds, D-A-Y-A-N-A-K-I-B-I-L-D-S. And if you're enjoying Talking Tactics, Please rate and review the show because there is nothing I love more than a good grade and positive reinforcement. Finally, if you just can't get enough good content, check out the other Enrollify Network podcasts for more higher ed marketing and admissions knowledge and inspiration. Season two of Talking Tactics is coming this January. Until next time, keep walking the walk and talking the tactics.